1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 is where we're going to start off. By way of an overview, if you haven't been here the last several weeks, that's okay. I, I hope to be able to present the book of Thessalonians as uh, each text can be kind of standalone, even though it obviously fits into the text that precede it and come behind it. But if you haven't been here, a quick overview is the book of Thessalonians is a pretty short book. It's a letter written to believers, new Christians in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, Paul visited there in his second missionary journey. He uh, shared the gospel, and people responded quickly to the gospel, and a church was formed. Uh, but opposition and affliction also came quickly, and Paul was run out of town quicker than he wanted, wanted to. And so Paul, obviously as the, at, the t at that time, the leader of that church, had to leave before he was really finished teaching some of the basic doctrines and principles of Christian living. And so uh, a little bit of tension came up after Paul's departure. Some, uh, some of those in that church thought, uh, wait a minute, um, why did you leave so quickly? You know, were you really serious about this? So the, the first half of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, is really uh, giving praise to God for the good things that are happening, but also kind of offering up a little bit of a defense on who he is, what he's doing, and why he has done it, and why it's supported by, by the scriptures. And so it's, it's a beautiful beginning to the text because it's really uh, lauding the Thessalonians and saying, you're, you're doing a great job. Most scholars say that uh, this church, if, if, you're, if you're using the word success, was the most quickly successful in that th their, uh, their, their turn to the gospel was very fast, and their growth was fast, but Paul had to leave quick. They think that he was there maybe only a matter of weeks, a matter of months at most. So he had to leave town, and he's writing this letter to offer some clarity, to add some more teaching, and some more doctrine. So that's the outline, that's the background of this book. Now, before we move into this text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want to do... Uh, something a little bit different, all right? I want you, where you're seated, to kind of group up into groups of three, and I want you to discuss this question. Um, I heard on the news yesterday, whatever, I'm not a lottery player, typically. Um, you know, sometimes you got to buy one when it's like at $800 million, you know, but... Um, <laughs> um, uh, I heard it was at $100 million. Okay, so the question, the question that I want you to discuss in your groups of three, all right, I said three because I want you to maybe chat with somebody that you may not know super well. All right, so groups of three, no more, no less. What would you do if you got $100 million? That's, that's the first part of the question. Um, but I want you to answer it as realistically as possible. All right, so don't just say I would buy... Europe, you know, you know, something like if I got, if I really got a hundred million dollars, literally, kind of what, what would be my plan? And the second half of that question is, what do you think you would do to keep it from ruining you or negatively affecting you? Does that make sense? Because we've all heard how it ruins people. You know, you see the athletes that are eighteen and they make, uh, you know, millions of dollars, and you know musicians and they they're super successful but then they're bankrupt really you know and so you know what would you what would you really honestly do um and what do you think you would need to do to keep it from ruining you okay i'll give you three four minutes to discuss all right so 
Three people around you, go. <laughs> All right. Um, so there's a principle. And a principle is something that is typically true. Right? It's not a, a law um, that is always true, but, but a principle is something that um, is typically, you, you can count on it. The principle is that money and power corrupt. Um, we see it in scripture. We see it in history. We see it in pop culture. And we see it in church history. We see it in modern evangelical church leaders as well, reformed church leaders. Um, and I remember a long time ago, I read a devotional, a real simple, it was a morning and evening type of thing. It wasn't Spurgeon, but, and it basically posed a similar question, and it kind of said, if you were the winner, um, what makes you think that you would be different, um, and that you wouldn't let it get to your head, and you wouldn't let it, you know, negatively affect you? And I, what I remember as, as I was reading it, I remember thinking, I can do this. Like, I remember thinking, yeah, but, you know, but I'm different is what I thought. And I thought, you know, I, I got to consider myself to have a fairly level head on my shoulders, and I got good people around me, and I manage, I consider that I manage my money well now. I, I give. You know, I've been tithing for a long time consistently. I feel strongly about that. And, and then, you know, as your mind works so fast, at that, at that moment, I remember thinking, wait a minute, Danny, that's exactly what this is saying, is, this, is if you think that you're the exception, then you're the problem. You know, if you look at this massive proven principle throughout the course of scripture, throughout the course of history, throughout the course of church history, and if you think, no, 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 but that's not me, then you're setting yourself up for defeat, right? Right? Um... Like, I don't like that, but I, I wholeheartedly believe that that's true. The very notion that I'm the one that isn't going to struggle with this kind of issue is the pride that brings you down. Isn't that interesting? That, that the very notion of thinking I'm not the one that would let money affect me like I see it in other people is, is the pride that can pull you down. Um, again, part of my own justification when I thought of that was I said, I know myself. I know myself, which is really a false statement because I have, um, since I'm not, I have not been glorified yet, I'm not in heaven yet, I still have sin problems. I still have a battle that's going on inside of me. I still have sin and all sin left unaddressed is always going to grow. All sin left unaddressed is always going to grow. And so just the notion of I'm the one that can do this right um, is dangerous. Now, I'm using this as an example, all right? I'm using this to kind of lead us into this text. I believe that Scripture presents a, a handful of topics that will always be relevant to discuss. That scripture presents a handful of topics that will always, always, always and forever to the day you die be relevant to discuss. That every, every stage of life, like, like money, okay, every stage of life brings a renewed need to hear the things that we've already 
been, been told, to be warned in ways that we've already been warned, in, that we need to continue to refresh our guard. There's never ever gonna be an age that you reach, whether it's, hey, when I'm 30, I'll have a bigger handle on this. When I'm 40, I'll be, I'll be stronger. When I'm 50 and mature and have some kids, and my portfolio set, then then I can, you know, let my guard down as far as money negatively ne- negatively affecting me. There's also never ever going to be a level of Christian maturity where money isn't going to be something that you need to deal with and handle in a godly way, ever. What we do know is that the handling of money is not something that we need to wait to discuss until you have a hundred million dollars. We understand that, right? Um, but handling money is something now that you need to discuss before you have it, maybe, some of you. <laughs> um, it's setting up principles and understanding now so that you can live in a godly way later. You've probably heard the principle of the best time to start tithing is when you have very, very little. You know, if you happen to be making $25,000, it's not a lot, and it's barely enough to live on by many standards in America, Um, but if you tithe your 10%, it's going to be a whole lot easier to tithe as as your income grows throughout the course of your life and your career. So it's not something to look at as, oh, I'm only making 25, and and so I shouldn't do it. There's a command to handle your money well now. um, Money is an issue in marriage. They say it's the number one issue that people fight. Um, it's something that we've seen uh, very respected members of the, of the Christian community fall and struggle with. So to think that I, not I, would struggle with that issue and never need to have it renewed or, or refreshed or brought up in my life is just arrogant. It's something that we need to keep in front of us all the time. Now, with that Concept. Just take that concept of needing to hear about money. Let's look at First First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one says this. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Chapter 1 begins with the word finally. All right, so Paul is kind of shifting directions in his letter. All right, the first three chapters were um, giving God the glory. They were, he was acknowledging the good things that God was doing through the Thessalonians. He was offering up a defense on why he had to leave early and how he still sincerely cares about them. And uh, the last two chapters really go into the majority of it is instruction and doctrinal teaching instruction and doctrinal teaching so he's saying finally and entering a new phase in this letter but it's a very um encouraging encouragement i'll call it all right because he says finally then brothers we ask you and we urge you in the lord jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God. So the, the, the teaching and training that you, that you have received. And then he says, just as you are doing. So he's very affirming here. This is a very positive tone. That you do so more and more, for you know what instruction that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, hey, we taught you, 
and you're doing it, props to you, praise be to God, uh, and, and continue. Keep doing those things. You know, it's not a tone of, now you're doing it good, just, just kind of coast. But he said, you're doing it like we taught you. These are good things. Now continue. And then the same tone pops up in verse 9. So move down to verses 9 and 10. He says, now concerning brotherly love, another issue that he's talking about, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Very positive, very encouraging. Verse 10, for that indeed is what you're doing. All right, that's, that's, these are good things. To all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you to do it more and more. All right, so this text that we're looking at here, even though we're not going to go further into verses 9 and beyond, it, it kind of begins with this, you were taught and you're doing it, good job. And it's kind of bookend on the, on the backside saying, hey, you've been taught and you're doing it, keep going on and on. And then there's this middle section that brings up a new subject. So let's read chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. He says, For this is the will of God. Stop. One of the biggest questions in all of Christendom is, how do we know the will of God? You know, books and books and books have been written. How do I know for sure what to do? And so when you read something like that, it's, it's, it's reason to, to slam the brakes and say, well, let's listen to this. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Big deal. We talked about sanctification last week. Sanctification is a partnership that you have with God for your spiritual growth. All right, God is doing the work in you, but you are participating. And it is what happens between your conversion and your entering of heaven. All right, You were saved when you accepted Christ as your Savior, and you are being saved. This is the process of sanctification. And you will be saved, which is glorification. So while you are breathing air through your nostrils, as a Christian, is the process of your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For each of you know how to control, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. It starts off with strong language. Listen to me type of language. Where he says, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And what we see in this text is it shows us that there is a continual need to address the issue of sex. It is one of those issues like money that is always going to be relevant to discuss. It's always going to be an appropriate time to discuss. Even if you don't have money, even if you're not married right now, it is still always going to be a relevant issue. And Paul, for whatever reason, but yet ordained by God, starts off this text by saying, hey, we've been teaching you good things, and you're doing it. Keep going. And, and, and bookend in verse 9 and 10, hey, we've taught you about brotherly love, and you're really, I mean, you're knocking out of the park. You're doing it. Now keep doing it. With those good things, you have to remember that this is the will of God. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. It was an issue then, it's an issue now. It's been an issue throughout the course of all of history. And it is something that is relevant for us to continue discussing. Don't be deceived, just like the $100 million to think I'm the one that could handle this situation. Because you're sinful. I'm sinful. We're, we're all sinful, and unchecked sin always gets worse. So there's always going to be a sin issue in us. There's always going to be, there's issues, I put authority in this category. Money, always going to need to discuss this. Authority, <clears throat> always going to need to discuss this. You're always going to be under authority. So whether you're a kid talking about your parents, or whether you're single and talking about a boss or the law, or when you're married, whatever it is, there's always this level of this, this issue of authority that you need to submit to and need to keep hearing it. There's always this issue of money and covetousness and contentment in Christ that you always, and tithing and giving, that you always need to talk about. And then there's this issue of sex. God has designed and created us to desire it. And it is an issue in the culture. It is an issue in the church. It is an issue in the Bible. It is an issue throughout the course of history. And what this text is saying, I truly believe, is that it needs to be a topic. And since this is where the Lord has led us, as we work through 1 Thessalonians, I want to talk about it. Um, and I wanted to bring up the money issue because I think money, money is something that's just, it's easier maybe to talk about. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to get you in groups of, you know. Um, <laughs> so like, but it's an issue because it's something that, um, it's just so, and I was single until I was 33, and it's so easy to think, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I'm in the church, and I got good people around me, and so therefore, serious sexual sin just isn't gonna be a, an issue for me throughout the course of my life. Danger, danger. Now, I don't want that. Like, I don't wanna think about that. And I don't wanna, I don't, it's, it's, it's humiliating to say that I'm susceptible to that. It's dirty, it's, it's, it can be life-shattering. But if I don't, if I let myself just camp in a place that says, I can handle this, that's when danger enters the room. So Paul says, for this is the will of God, for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And your sanctification here is just not about abstinence. Your sanctification here is how you deal with sexual sin and how you deal with sexual temptation. It's, it's both and. So whether this has been a, a big issue for you in a place where you've struggled and fallen, your sanctification is still involved in that process and how you recover. But as well, if you've kept yourself pure, you're still going to be tempted. If you're not now, you will be guaranteed in ways that you never would have imagined. It's coming. It is coming. And if you think that it's not, you're deceiving yourself. All right? So now is the time to talk about it before it's here, if it's not raging at your door right now. It's just like tithing. It's just like dealing with authority. 
you know, Lauren and I were talking with each other about, you know, helping our daughter with authority because she's in the terrible twos and she's doing these different things that are frustrating to us. And to stop and to say, listen, if we can help her learn how to respond properly to this authority, mom and dad, then what we're doing is we are helping her learn how to respond to God. That's what we're doing. Because God has designed it that way. That it's not just one of those things that you can be flippant through life and then suddenly, at some point, you're like, I need to be submissive to the authority of God. No, you're supposed to be uh, submissive to, to small levels of authority because it's teaching you. It's training you. It's showing you the way to joy. It's by design. So we read verses 3 through 8, and it makes a big deal of sexual sin. So with that in mind, let's look at 3 through 8 again. Because Paul starts off kind of joyful. And in 9 and 10, he is kind of, his spirits are up. But yet there's this solemn warning in the middle. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in contradiction, all right, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. That's to be noted. Not just, hey, it's really good, but the Lord is an avenger, meaning there's a consequence. The Lord is an avenger in all these things as we have told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, this is, this is big. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And when we disregard the Holy Spirit, there is nothing left to convict us of sin. When we disregard the Holy Spirit, that is the last line of conviction. There's not a plan B. There's not, hey, if you disregard the Holy Spirit here, then there's going to be some other force, some other spirit, some other person that is then going to knock on your door and finally say, what are you thinking? And you're going to be, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It doesn't work that way. Disregarding the Holy Spirit is a very dangerous place to be. Now, we could go on and on about that concept alone. But we won't. We'll just take that as saying this is serious. Sexual sin is a big deal. I want to present to you for, for four reasons. And again, I, I want to present this in such a way that this is valuable content for, for now and for the future. You know, if you can take information from this, if this is not, maybe this is something that you're struggling with right now. It likely is in a group this size with somebody. If it's not... This is information that you need to keep hearing now. You need to keep hearing now to fight this battle when it comes later because it's coming. Sexual sin is a big deal because it is a sin of the mind. It is a sin of the heart. It is a sin of the body, and it is a sin of the soul. A sin of the mind, the heart, the body, and the soul. First, it is a sin of the mind. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 if you want to flip there 
go there because we're going to look at this for just a second. Sexual sin is a sin of the mind. James chapter 1, verse 12. Give you just a second to flip there or click there, depending on your biblical medium. (laughs) It says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 14 again. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, in verse 14, when it says, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, each one of us is built with, this, uh, with a sexual desire, that there, that there is something inside of us, across the board, not just sexually, that, that desires sin. I was a Christian in college, um, and I worked, this, uh, I worked this catering job in Chicago. It was real high end. We all had to wear tuxedos. And we, you know, I was the penguins, though, you know, and offering hors d'oeuvres to people. But these, these parties would be crazy and wild and wide open bars and, you know, on the top of skyscrapers. And it looked like people were having the time of their life, drunk out of their minds. And I remember th- sitting there thinking, there's something that kind of, I know that's not what I should do, but there's something that's just appealing about all this. Wealth and alcohol and parties and grandeur of the, of the city. And I, and, I, and I remember sitting there thinking um, that, that I, I'm not going to do that, but I, I want, I got, a part of me wants that. Um, that there are times when we can quickly quench that temptation, quickly say, but I know, I know better, and we can kind of move on, but there are times when we don't move on. There are times in my mind when I'm tempted to do something, and I apply scripture, or I apply prayer, and I quench that temptation, because temptation to be tempted in itself is not a sin. But temptation left unaddressed leads, leads to sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not just by the world, but by his own desires. Buster always says that sin makes you stupid. And once again, we can't be deceived into thinking that surely, surely not me. That temptation, though being tempted itself, is not a sin. We have, we have to fight it in our heart and in our mind first, because that's where it starts. It always starts with the temptation. You don't just fall into sin without being tempted first. That's illogical. So sexual sin begins in the mind. If you're tempted in your mind, it's something that you need to address with scripture and with prayer first. Sexual sin is a sin of the heart. Matthew chapter 5, 
let me pause here for a second. I want to go back to James, okay? It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. All right, there's, it's so easy to interpret this as saying, blessed is the man who, who remains steadfast under trial by saying, you know what? They're talking about physical persecution. They're talking about being beaten for their faith. They're talking about all these real sin problems. And I struggled with that for a long time because I live in America in the 2000s, 2000, 2015, and like life has been pretty comfortable. So when you, read, when you read stuff like this and your mind says, no, remaining steadfast under trial, you know what that can mean? That can mean your struggle with sexual temptation it, because that's an affliction. That's a struggle. That's, that, that's, that's a path that leads to destruction. And if you're struggling with that, if you're battling with that, then that's a trial. That's an affliction. That's real life. All right, so don't just discard this and say that, that this is only talking to those super Christians that might get burned at the stake for their faith. This is talking to every single believer and whatever might cause you to be distraught in any way, whether it's a big issue or a little issue, that you can fight this with the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't just brush some of these texts under the rug by saying that's only talking about physical persecution. All right, so sexual sin is a, is a sin of the heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, 28, 29, or 27, 28, it says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, you shall not, commit, you shall not commit adultery. We get that. And they understood that back then too. But Jesus takes it to the next level. He says that everyone who looks at a woman or a woman who looks at a man lustfully I'm going to assume that we've all sinned in this way that the temptation has gone from a temptation to a sin in your mind and in your heart sinful thoughts are dangerous because we often say but my thoughts don't hurt anybody once again that's a trap this is where sin begin begins in the mind and it moves to the heart if it's left undressed it will always grow you don't have to turn here but Luke chapter 6 says this that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the of the heart out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and this is addressing that if in your mind sexual sin starts in your mind and it progresses and moves to a sin of the heart that is evil you don't have to be Hitler just to be considered evil sexual sin is evil all sin is evil but in this context it's, it's evil because it's anti-God and it takes you to destruction it's evil and so if there's evil left unaddressed in our heart unaddressed it is then going to begin to show itself physically Starts in the mind, moves to the heart. Number three, sexual sin is the sin of the body. 1 Corinthians 6. Turn there. Um, chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Um, 
Paul says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not, th- not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God wants to destroy both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up, and we will get new bodies, it says in Scripture. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, Im- but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We see here a good example that not all sins are equal. Maybe you've heard that. That all sins are sin to God. It's not true. All sin and any sin can damn you. It only takes one sin to be imperfect and for therefore to have that broken relationship with God. But not all sin is equal. There are levels of sin with greater levels of consequence. Um, and sexual sin has a greater consequence. In levels of, of, of church authority, if you commit sexual sins, you, you could be... Uh, banned from those levels of authority for for life. Sexual sin allows for you to break the covenant of marriage if one's spouse has been unfaithful. And there are many, many other sins that don't allow for that. Um, So sexual sin, when it it moves from the mind to the heart to the body, is a higher level. Um, not just as a statement, but because if you're a Christian, we're speaking to Christians here. If you're a Christian, your body is where the Holy Spirit dwells. That we don't have a tabernacle to meet with the Holy Spirit. It is here now. And so therefore, when, when our, our body sins in a sexual way, it is a sin against the Holy Spirit. take just a second and address that. It's not. It's grieving the spirit. Um, But that's not unpardonable. Um, You're going to grieve the spirit. I'm going to grieve the spirit. Um, When we've we've sinned sexually in our mind and our heart, we're grieving the spirit. Okay? Um, When you unpack the the, the verse that speaks of the unpardonable sin and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it it is a rejection throughout the course of your life of the Holy Spirit's influence. And you can't be saved from that. So basically, it's like one maybe on the next one. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that later. Um, but there's a great warning here. And fourth, uh, sexual sin is a big deal because it is a sin against the soul. First Peter chapter two, verse eleven. First Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. 
It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Eternal matters are at stake because sexual sin is such a big deal that it can derail your life. It can as a principle. Um, it, can, it can derail your marriage. It can derail your ministry. Um, it can derail your walk with Christ. It can derail your reputation. And it goes on and on. So therefore, sexual sin is a big deal. It is an ever-present temptation at varying levels throughout the course of life. Um, and we need to be vigilant as we guard against it. I like to think of it in the context of um, of termites. I'm a homeowner, and every three months, these, these termite people come over and check my house and treat my house. It doesn't matter. I know somebody uh, who bought a house for I don't know exactly, but I know the neighborhood, so I know that it's between five and eight hundred thousand dollars. And uh, upon right before they signed on the dotted line, termite damage. So it doesn't matter if it's a it's a, it's a mega house. You still got to be careful. If there's dirt, if there's wood, you have to be careful. If you're human and you're breathing, you have to be careful of sexual temptation. It's always ever-present. And throughout the course of the life of my house, until the Lord takes it by hurricane or burning to the ground, I always have to make sure that this issue is being addressed or it can ruin my house. The same way for us spiritually. So that's why these things need to be talked about early and these things need to be talked about often. Dealing with sexual sin and sexual temptation um, is a part of your sanctification. It's, it's a part of your sanctification because it deals with all of you, your heart, your body, your mind, and your soul. It has to do with your affections. It has to do with your habits. It has to do with your meditations. It has to do with your everydayness of life. Um, and I want to end with this. So what do you do about this if you're struggling with this? It has to start with the mind. We have to fight it with Jesus. And I'm not just being cliche here. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. If we're going to fight any level of sin, it's not just about having covenant eyes on your computer. It's not just about... Uh, not making sure that you're not getting avenues to sin sexually and you're around the right people. Your, your, your mind and your heart have to be flooded with Jesus. That's the thing that is going to push out other sin. Piper talks about you must have a greater affection. A lot of these guys talk about that. You know, if you have this sin struggle, there has to be something better that's fighting it. And something better is not just an accountability partner. That something better is Jesus. So you have to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who... For the joy set before him endured the cross. So he was faced with affliction. He was faced with temptation. And he endured 
the point of death on the cross because the joy set before him. So even Jesus fixed his eyes on something. The joy set before him. And we can fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to dwell on the things of God if we're going to fight this. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We have to dwell on these things, think about these things in our mind, which means we have to positively go to them. You've got to be reading good stuff. You've got to be around the right people. You've got to be having good discussions, and you have to remove anything negative. You know, I pre-marriage was a huge movie buff, and I love my wife more than movies now. And, and we just don't watch that many movies. You know what I found is that movies are much, much more offensive to me than they were when I was watching a movie every week in the theater which I, I was pre-marriage. I, I had a little extra cash, and I loved movies, and I'd, I'd see every movie, it seemed like, that came out. I mean, I had a line, but, you know, violent movies and movies with language and try to stay from away from anything that had sex in it because I know that's a temptation, and I want to fight that. But, I mean, now I watch a movie, and if it's R-rated and it's the same level of violence that I was watching before, it's kind of like, ah, you know, dropping F-bombs all the time. I didn't, didn't, I don't think I noticed that before. Now it's like, I don't, I just don't like that. And so if these are struggles, if these are temptations, that you need to back off of just the culture, maybe. Stop watching TV. Lauren and I cut our cable, and we, start, we, we, we watch a little bit of network TV, and every time we watch network TV, we're like, whoa, did you see that commercial? And it's because we've been removed from it. Now, I can't believe they're showing that on network TV now. You know, I sound like my parents. <laughs> but it's true. You have to put yourself more and more and more where God works. If this is a level of temptation for you, you have to put yourself more and more where God is working. And you know where he's working? In Christian community, in service, in the word, in prayer. That's where God's working. If, if God is a, a pitcher of water pouring himself out for us, then we've got to get under the water. You've got to go to it and put yourself more and more there. And if you're struggling in deep ways, you just might need to talk to somebody. And I'm available, and so is Lauren. And I'm serious. If you've tried all this stuff and you're like, I'm in deep, I've heard it all. You're not the only one. So we can talk about it. All right? I'm available. There is great awe. I'm going a little longer than I wanted, but I want to end with the awe. Okay? Because what I don't want this to be is I don't want this to be a, you know, you just got to wait for marriage. Um, you know, sex is just better in marriage. Because I don't think that that's what, that's what this text is talking about. I believe that what this text is talking about is that when we do things God's way, God inserts a level of joy that you cannot find in any other way. You just can't. That God brings something to the table that you can't produce. And so if you go other places to try to find God things, you will continually be disappointed, and it will rot you. It will eat you up. 
And so we have to make sure that when we look at things that we say, I really do believe that God's ways are best, and I'm going to fight tooth and nail because I want joy. I want the greatest level of joy possible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Paul speaking to the Hebrews is saying, don't, don't give up on your faith. There's great reward for you have need of endurance to keep on keeping on so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised to you so that if you keep that sexual temptation at bay through the Holy Spirit and scripture until you're able to enjoy it in the bond of marriage, it's not just going to be something that you finally get to engage in that I've been looking forward to, but God brings something more to the table. A joy is added that has eternal consequence. And that is what is worth fighting for. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your power. I thank you for the way that you work. I thank you that you've designed us the way that you have. And Father, please help us to fight the good fight with this. In Jesus' name, amen.